This is Rain's Essential Geopolitics Podcast, your primary source for quick and reliable geopolitical risk intelligence. I'm Emily Donahue. Welcome. One notable development in the Asia-Pacific region over the past few years has been the remilitarization of Japan. You may recall after World War II, the victorious allies demanded the complete demilitarization of the country. For decades, Japan continued that policy. But things are changing. Scott Cardis is Reign's Asia-Pacific analyst. He says Japan is rapidly remilitarizing. Scott, welcome aboard. Hi, Emily. Great to be here. Why is Japan remilitarizing? Maybe you could talk to us about an end goal. Japan is looking to regain some independence and remove the dependence on the United States for their security guarantees. This is very important for Japan because they're, they're right next to a very bellicose North Korea, which has been threatening uh, Japan with missile strikes. They launched an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, over the northern Japanese islands, which nobody really likes. You don't want to have a country launching missiles over you, even if it's just a test and there wasn't really a threat to you. It doesn't look good for Japan if they have to keep coming to the United States to beg America for help. And so part of their end goal is to then become a far more independent force in Northeast Asia. It's extremely unlikely that Japan's end goal is to become a global security force similar to the United States, but they are very much interested in having a very large impact on the region. Uh, Scott, maybe you could tell me how Japan's government is going to go about doing this. Yeah, the Japanese government has started the basics. They, they've begun increasing the military budget. They're looking to hit about 2% of their GDP spending. And if, if that number seems similar, it is identical to what NATO countries uh, are supposed to have their, their defense spending as part of their GDP. Japan is also taking part in some NATO exercises. They recently attended NATO conferences in Spain. They are very much uh, upping their bilateral and trilateral, multilateral uh, defense exercises with countries like the United States and South Korea. However, even with all of these moves, Japan still has several large constraints, like you mentioned. The biggest constraint is Article 9, which does not allow Japan to declare war. And they also do not have any recognition, any formal recognition, I should say, of any armed forces in the Japanese constitution. So right now, the Japanese government has the Japanese Self-Defense Force. It is not a military. It is not an army. It is more akin to the American National Guard than anything else. However, if Japan really wants to actually take an active role and use their military, first Japan needs to amend their constitution to at least recognize the Japanese Self-Defense Force as a real entity, giving it some power and recognition. Then in the long term, they would likely need to amend Article 9 or completely remove it so they are allowed to declare war. Well, that's no small task, of course. But what happens if Japan does increase its military capability? Yeah, uh, to be very clear, when I say, you know, Japan will you know, have the potential to declare war. It's very unlikely, extremely unlikely, that they're going to, you know, try and declare war on, let's say, North Korea. But if they increase their military capacity, and let's say over the next several years, which is what they're looking to do, this is going to change the security dynamic in Northeast Asia. Traditionally, the United States and Japan operate in a spear and shield dynamic, 
The United States forces serve as the spear, more of the offensive, whereas Japan operates the shield, a more defensive approach. This would potentially switch roles. So suddenly we would see the United States supporting Japanese forces, while Japan takes a more active role in regional activities. For example, if there is an incident with North Korea, the United States doesn't need to be coordinating with Japan or controlling Japan or running operations from Japan. Instead, they can sit back and run support operations. They can uh, help with logistics and allow the Japanese forces to take more offensive roles. This, th this definitely changes a lot because then it would also force Japan and South Korea to really increase their bilateral cooperation and ties. And their ties, That's a, this is a whole separate topic, but their ties are very cool right now. They're warming up, but it's, it's going to take a while before that happens. But if they are to remilitarize, they will definitely need to fix that relationship. And then it will result in a more cohesive Northeast Asian security policy, especially against North Korea. Scott, I mean, the relationship difficulties go back to the aforementioned World War II, correct? Yes. The relationship is fraught. It goes back to about 1910 when Japan formally annexed South Korea and began a, a pretty brutal occupation that ended in 1945 with the surrender of Japan in World War II. So there's a lot of history that Japan has to overcome in order to get this forward-looking project underway. I wanted to ask you very quickly if you could tell me what the United States' opinion of this is. I imagine it would prefer not to be the sword and would prefer to be the shield. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. The United States doesn't want to have the burden of running the show everywhere. They would love for Japan to be able to take a far more active role in regional security because it frees up American assets to be available in other theaters. For example, there is everyone's worried about a potential war in Taiwan. I am not saying that there is going to be a war in Taiwan, but in the event that there is, it would be easier for the United States if they also didn't need to worry about having a lot of troops or worry about North Korea and controlling that Northeast Asian security theater. They can leave that to Japan and South Korea and instead focus entirely on Taiwan. Well, thank you, Scott. That's really very enlightening. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Scott Cardis is an Asia-Pacific analyst with RAIN. You can read his analysis of this situation in RAIN Worldview, our risk intelligence app for professionals, and in our consumer publication, which offers objective geopolitical analysis and intelligence covering the global landscape. Find out more about RAIN's industry-leading risk management tools for businesses, including RAIN Worldview, at rainnetwork.com. That's... R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.